Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hot blue sky wheeled around and the crashing sound of metal on stone faded into silence. Where was he and who? He seemed to be lying on his side. Drops of moisture crawled over his forehead and the sun beat hard on his shoulder and back. He raised his head to see if it would hurt. Are you on top of me? A voice from below him. Then running footsteps and excited shouting voices with Caribbean accents. The world rocked back and forth then heaved around and his 200 pounds fell back behind that goddamn steering wheel on the wrong side of the car. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Maggie Cast, author of Side by Side and Face to Face, a novella and stories. Shifting between Chicago, Austria, and Door County, Wisconsin, the linked narratives slowly tell the story of Greta, daughter, wife, mother, widow, survivor, and spiritual seeker. She's challenged by the loss of a child, the death of a husband, and the difficulty of raising a son with a developmental disability. Some of the characters, says author Maggie Cast, are based on real people, and some are entirely imagined. But Greta's spiritual search is based on the author's. Hi, Maggie. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thank you for having me. I am indeed a great fan of podcasts, and I'm very excited to be on one. So let's start out with a question that's been burning. Which one of these is the story that began this book? And how did you decide to create a novel in stories? Well, I didn't decide to create a novel in stories. Um, I wrote and published these stories, not all of them, but most of them over a period of 20 years. And then more recently, I wrote the novella. And then actually, after the whole thing had been accepted for publication by Orison Books, I took it to a program called Writing by Writers. And they have a manuscript boot camp, which is a workshop for completed manuscripts. And there I worked with three other writers, and the teacher, the leader of the workshop was Garth Greenwell. And he saw the whole thing as a consistent manuscript, and Duff advised me clearly to link the stories so that all the characters were accounted for in all the stories. You could ask, where was so-and-so at this point, and get an answer. So I made those edits, and it became much more linked at that point. So interesting. You've written another novel and also a memoir. So what drew you into telling so much of your own personal stories through these characters you've created? 
Well, you know, that's a hard question because I think that every writer is drawn both to uh, reveal themselves and to conceal themselves by means of a character, as well as to write about other people, but also to write about the way they imagine other people might have been. So it's always a combination of memory and imagination and also investigation and research. And all of those went into all of these stories and all of this book and all of my books, actually. Ah. In different ways. For instance, my novel is based on the the time and the lives of my parents. It's a coming-of-age story that takes place in 1930. So it deals with people that I never knew, though I knew them later. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about autobiographical similarities. Like Greta, your protagonist, you've experienced the death of a child. I can't imagine how painful that was. Another child with a disability, also heartbreaking and embracing religion after growing up secular. And this is these are just a few of the things that are similar. Can we talk about that? Um, certainly. I mean, in fact, those are things that I experienced. But, uh, but you never are just telling what happened, you know. You're always, uh, even if you're writing in the first person, which I was in my memoir, but I'm not here, um, you're always uh, inventing the character. It's going to be part of yourself and part, have aspects that are not yourself. So you were also married to an Austrian man. Right. And then you wrote in the memoir about him. How similar was he to Manfred? Well, obviously Manfred is based on him. But, you know, I have stories in the book that we're discussing that take place when Manfred was 18, when I never could possibly have known him. It's before I was born. Uh, So I'm imagining myself into this person as an adolescent by means of invention and some research about the history of the period. Uh, And that was really a lot of fun to write. I mean, it was, uh, I don't know, he wasn't alive to tell me whether he thought it was true or not. And certainly I made up things that I couldn't possibly have known and that I didn't know. I mean, there's many things in there that are just not historical. They're simply fiction. Well, let's talk about the food in the book. What is that historical? Is that based on foods that you ate, foods that he loved? Um, well, I do because I love food and I love cooking and I loved cooking for my husband and I learned a lot about cooking from my mother-in-law. There is a, a lot of food that is reasonably authentic um, in there. Um, but of course, people don't eat the same in 1990 as they did in like the 19th century. Uh, mm-hmm. which is where the story about Manfred's mother, Maria, takes place. Uh, so, of course, it's not the same. But it, but it's the, the food is as authentic as I could make it. Mm-hmm. Manfred's mother, Maria, who we were just talking about, she does whatever she can, as any mother would, to save him from harm. Mm-hmm. And this is 1930s. No, he was born. When was he born, Manfred? He was born in 1916, right in the middle of the First World War. 1916. So she does whatever she can to save him from harm, including converting out of Judaism and not circumcising him. It's clear to everyone, though, that he still would have been murdered by the Nazis in the 30s. In other words, he would not have been able to pass his Aryan. So because this was Vienna right, in the 30s. Tell us about the parallels between the historical persecution of the Jewish people and current marginalized peoples, because... I was thinking there were a lot of similarities. Well, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that um, people are really not aware of is that the Jews were persecuted in Europe from way back, from the 
well, probably 17th century and before. And that we think of that as a unique situation, but now we're realizing that the African-American population of the United States has a similarly long history of persecution because it started with slavery, with the importation of slaves from Africa, and it's you know continued uh, up to today. So uh, there, there really is more similarity than, than we might have realized. I mean, there are always historical differences. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that we've actually murdered any six million people, but still the, the history and the, the way the history is unknown uh, until you investigate it, or at least it's denied, is very similar between the two. God forbid that should ever happen again. Right. Six million God, people. God forbid, of, of my people. Greta is a dancer, a teacher, a choreography, a choreographer, as were you. I'm curious about whether or not you gave her only your best characteristics or if you also included some of the things you didn't or don't like about yourself. Uh, oh, I think that uh, I think I think that I did. Maybe not enough, but um, you know, uh, let's see. What did I include? I mean, I think that I show her as being particularly uh, kind of cool and rational, which is either a good or a bad characteristic depending on your opinion. I also show her in the novella as capable of dishonesty, which is I'm certainly not proud of. Um, I don't know. Hmm. And the dancing part, that was so interesting. And she's also a writer, right? She was teaching writing at some point? Right. Well, she yeah, she was teaching. Of, uh, well, I, I don't think that that's, I'm trying to think what's actually in the story. I, the author, taught um, a freshman seminar and dance at Valparaiso. And then I taught um, first year writing at Columbia College Chicago for about 13 years. Um so, but I don't think that's really in there. It doesn't play any role anyhow in there. Still, she she's your doppelganger in some right. way. Right. There's a, a sad but funny scene in which Manfred, who's young then, because the chapters go back and forth mm-hmm. in time, he's taken to a brothel and finds himself sitting next to a prostitute. Why is the thing he remembers most their conversation? Uh, well, uh, that's a good question. Um, maybe because anything else would be would embarrass him so much that the uh, uh, memory would be blocked, that he would repress the memory. Uh, you know, I think he, he. I think had first of all, that's a totally imagined scene. But secondly, had it happened in reality, uh, and had he been there, um, he would not have been able to perform, and he would have felt very bad about that, as most men do, especially at that age. And they feel they're being yeah. tested. Yeah, it was very sweet. Tell us about Manfred's parents. You gave his mother a story of her own. Was was that based on your actual mother-in-law? In any case, tell us about them. Well, now, uh, of course, I wasn't alive in the 19th century, and I didn't know Maria as a child. Uh, so the, the picture of her going out to pick cherries, for instance, which is how that story begins, is totally fictional. However, she did have older brothers, and her father was a general in the Austrian army, which was very unusual for a Jewish person at that time. Um, the, um, let's see, I'm just trying to think about details of that story. Um, so I think, I mean, I invented the idea that she was sort of oppressed by her brothers, but she was the youngest, and I think it's, it would be rather likely. It is true that the oldest brother uh, emigrated to the U.S., and uh, to avoid serving in the Kaiser's army and became a, had a good career as a physician. 
Um, but those are really invented characters. I mean, they're based on real people, but they're, they do not follow. There are no way, um, you know, biography. They could never pass muster as biography. Fact checker could take it apart <laughs> in an instant. Uh, Maria and Otto, is it? That they're yes, interesting. That was, that was her husband, yes. So what is their, what, ab- what about them interested you? They're an interesting pair. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I think that's the, I think really, in a sense, Maria's story is a story of trying to escape her, her background and her, and her fate. Um, I think, you know, it, for me as a person, I, st- I think I started out with not much sympathy for it, but the more research I did into the, into the history, the long-term history, the history from the 17th century on, the more I understood that, that she was really kind of a person in a trap. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, well, the, the myth of, of, of having waltz, having waltz with, a, with an officer and that life could never be as good as that again, that was something that was true of my mother-in-law. She, she was a painter and she painted images of the whirling, the whirling young woman on the dance floor and the uh, handsome officer that she didn't get to marry. And then the come down that, that started with that and then ended with, you know, we don't think very much about what the end of the First World War was like for a person living in Austria, but it was a complete come down. You know, they had been part of the, uh, at least for her, because her father was in the army, they'd been part of, a, of this empire, you know, that was big, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And they'd been the upper crust people of that because, you know, all the uh, people of the other countries, the Hungarians and the Slovenians and the people from the Czech lands and so on, were all under them. Uh, and now all of a sudden, all these lands were cut off. They were reduced to a tiny little country and, uh, and they were impoverished. You know, they, I mean, I, th- this, I heard my mother-in-law talk about, you know, there was, she couldn't feed her baby because there was no milk and there was no meat and so on. She always blamed his bad teeth on that. Oh, and then there's this interesting last scene of when Manfred is in the hospital dying and his dentist appears to him? Mm, I, no, I think that wasn't his dentist. Again, I haven't looked at that story just lately, but there was a dentist who was on the um, a volunteer at his clinic. That um, was it. Yeah. So it's not, it's not his dentist. He assembled a great group of doctors and dentists who worked for nothing in a clinic that had no means test. They asked people to contribute their time. And that was it. No, they never asked. They just came there when it was in, you know, on the south side of Chicago in a relatively poor area. And uh, they just served anyone who turned up at the door. Does it really exist? A, a oh, clinic it did, yeah. I mean, ah, it, was, ah. it, was, it was my husband's clinic. Yeah, it was at St. Basil's Church. Well, first he had a clinic with the Black Panther Party. It's called the Spurgeon Winters People's medical center and then he had the at St. Basil's Church the St. Basil's People's Medical Clinic. Wow. Okay. That's hard to know which things are based on truth and um <laughs> but, but that that scene the scene of his death is very it's very dreamlike sequence and um, mm-hmm. and right one of the dentists who worked in his clinic appears and then his it seems like his last thoughts involve that dentist which was a little bit funny and sad at the same time. Uh, let's go. I I, yeah, I don't think that's true. I mean, I'm again. I'm trying to remember the story, but um, no. It, there's two priests from the uh, from the uh, 
from the St. Basil's Clinic who are praying with him at the end. Uh, and they're praying this litany um, that kind of goes on and on. And, and then it starts reminding him of, uh, of sets sounding like men in a bar room talking. He, he was really quite a character, that Manfred. Um, let's go on to Greta. So um, now she's a widow and she, her efforts to help Alan, her, her uh, developmentally disabled child, are heartbreaking. In addition to his issues, he, his developmental issues, he has Crohn's disease. And I understand you live this struggle. Can you talk a, a bit about the parallels what she's going to explain what she's going through. Well, um, the, there's two stories that are about Alan. Um, the first one is a joyful noise. It's called joyful noise. And it's about, um, you know, his living in the world before he was severely sick. Um, meaning physically sick and how he, how he managed things, how she took him to a concert and how he loved music. And, and she enabled him to play the, uh, something called the earth harp. That was an instrument set up at the field museum that, that all really happened. Um, and I've told that story in different versions. So that that's where imagination comes in. You know, I've asked the question, what would it be like if he did play the earth harp and what would it be like if he didn't? And I've, I've told that story in two different ways. Um, so the second story that's about him is the one about his hospitalization, which was very long and very bad. Uh, and he, it turned out not to have Crohn's disease, at least according to the surgeon that operated on him. Uh, but he turned out to have some kind of unidentifiable tumor. They called it a desmoid tumor, which is malignant, but not metastatic. Uh, but in any case, he just couldn't eat. And so he, he, he faded away over a hundred days in the hospital. So that part was very, very difficult. And that he was misdiagnosed. Right. You know, I mean, it, he, nobody really cared. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, I did, but the medical system didn't really care about what happened. He was, you know, he went from being, you know, developmentally delayed to also being incurable. So there's not much that, you know, doctors like to cure things. Oh, and they made it clear to you that they didn't care. Well, you know, yeah, there's there's that one point in the in the story, No Pity, of where the uh, the gastroenterologist says to me, you know, well, if it weren't for you, and what he means is, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be sitting here trying to figure out what to do. I would just be through with it. Yeah. So Greta, she's a really tough woman, but she goes to a psychiatrist. She falls for him, mm-hmm. and then, uh, and not long afterwards, she goes. She talks to her, her priest every week, and she falls for both of them. Neither of them are accessible. What's going on with that? Well, first of all, I have to tell you that most of the novella is fictional. Uh, the, the The stories have more of an uh, autobiographical element, uh, but most of the uh, of the novella is fictional. Um, so, um, so you're saying what what how how does that happen? Well, I think that um, you know. What I really think is that in all relationships, you know, there are more people present than meet the eye. You know, there's the person that you're talking to, and then there's the person that you imagine being there. Uh, And sometimes the two of them overlap so much that they're the same person, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes you mix up your husband with your father, or sometimes you mix up your psychiatrist with your lover or whatever. So I think there's always some of that going on. But also in a relationship where you talk with a person, whether it's a spiritual director, which the priest was, or a psychiatrist, in an experience like that, 
uh, it leaves a huge amount of, of room. It absolutely invites, uh, you know, fantasy to play a role. That's probably why those are healing relationships. Uh, and um, so those are similar in that there's an enclosed space with nobody else in it, and there's a listener, and there's an invitation to speak, and, the, you know, you can say whatever you want. And if the person that's listening is smart enough not to get involved, which is not always the case, uh, it can be a very worthwhile and healing relationship. But she grapples with the concept of therapy, and she seems to me alternatingly upset with the doctor's the, with the psychiatrist's responses and intrigued. Like she even brings up one of my pet peeves, which is when you tell a therapist that you're upset about something and then the reply seems like it's out of a manual. How does that make you feel? <laughs> she, she, I love that line. Well, you know, it's called positive and negative transference, meaning that you can bring in someone that you love and then you think you're in love with the person or you can bring in someone that you hate and then you get very angry with the person. And they're both very valid responses and they're both useful, especially if you talk about them. Okay. Um, Was she healed? Uh, well, let's see. I'm going to answer in terms of the story. Uh, she seems to be. She goes to Door County and she's uh, going to a, a yoga workshop and uh, she meets and falls in love with somebody. So uh, I would say she must be healed. So let's spend some time in beautiful Door County. Uh, what about the Hmong people inspired you? And have you gotten any feedback from anyone of that culture who either liked or disliked what you wrote, because it's a, it's a tricky situation. It is certainly the question of appropriation is very tricky. And there's been a lot of conflict and controversy about it, as I'm sure, you know, in recent times. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was, um, well, first of all, one of the basic um, ideas or themes of the book is, is otherness. How do you relate to people that are different from you, whether it's an Austrian husband or a psychiatrist you can never really know or a person of another culture and another or another time? So those are, those are themes that go throughout the book. Uh, I was drawn to the Hmong community first by a, a documentary film that I saw about a family from Appleton and how they were adapting or in the kind of conflicts that they faced between the traditional way of life and the modern way of life that they were both they were living both of them in different ways. Um, and then I did a lot of research. I discovered the Hmong literary community, which is thriving and vast, and I read a lot of their works. Um, and I read the uh, Anne Fadiman's book, When the Spirit Catches You When You Fall Down, which is more of an well, excellent book, but more anthropological account of medical care in the Hmong community. Um, and then after I had, had written at least a draft of the novella, I took it to a Hmong writer uh, for editing, and I asked her to correct me on things about the culture or the, sep- or the celebrations, the, co- the rituals, the way that things were done. And she was very helpful. Um, there were just a few things that I found <laughs> that there was a dish that they prepared that involved the mixing of three different kinds of meat. And it was it was really unpleasant for someone who doesn't eat meat to uh-huh. read about, <laughs> that they combined them all together in one dish. Did you, did you actually eat that dish? Uh, I didn't. And I also, I'll tell you the truth. My Hmong editor told me that although the kind of food that I described and the way it was prepared was correct, that she had never heard of a stew with three different kinds of meat in it. So it, uh-huh. it, it is not in that way authentic. All the vegetables were, and the other things about the ritual were, but that was not. 
So your stories and the novella are infused, as you said, with difference, other, mm-hmm. but the, the differences are religious, cultural, and they're all, they're overcome. People overcome them. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for making that happen in real life too. We can use it right now. Oh, that's true, but I sure don't have any advice, uh, except, you know, get out there and fight for justice. I mean, that's, you know, uh, but I I think that, you know, um, listening is really important um, and, uh, you know, aiming for understanding cultural difference, uh, even if it seems at first, you know, like something that you would step away from, um, you know, getting to know people. Uh, of, of whatever other group you're concerned with, getting to know individuals and then getting to know families and so on. I mean, those are all the things that are important. Yeah. So what are you working on next? Uh, I've been writing food essays um, since that's something that I'm really interested in. And I think I'm trying to, I, I, there are some food writers that I really love uh, and I believe strongly in, you know, reading in order to write. Um, but I'm really battling with how you integrate food with other issues, you know, so that it's not an essay is not just about food. I think, um, for instance, Lagaya Michan, who writes for uh, the New York Times, used to be on the food page. And now she's writing for the tea magazine, the fashion magazine. But she writes food stuff really as cultural anthropology. Now, I'm no anthropologist, but this is just something that I admire a lot. And um, I've, this is what I'm trying to do. But it's a big challenge. I hope there are recipes involved. Well, you know, you, you, some is are okay. Oh, there's a really good collection from Tin House called Food and Booze, edited by uh, Michelle. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her last name. I think it's Wild again. Um, and that has a great variety of, of essays by, uh, by very different, uh, some well-known, but all, all very good writers. And uh, they do have recipes with them, like one with each. But a lot of times when I take an essay like this to my writing group, they say, well, you don't necessarily want recipes in there. So I don't know. I haven't figured that out either. Well, I that's did- okay. You, you could just give them to me personally, <laughs> you know, send them my way. Well, Nobody my, else needs to get them. My daughter and I did a, an informal recipe collection where she did the photos and, and I wrote the text um, just for friends and family. So, so there is that, but the, they need a lot of work to become publishable essays. Well, I will look forward to reading your uh, food essays. Thank you so much, Maggie Cast, for joining me today and best of luck. Well, thank you so much, Galit Gottlieb. This has been a great pleasure. Thank you for discussing all of these issues with me. And uh, I look forward to hearing the podcast. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host of New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Maggie Cast, author of Side by Side and Face to Face, a novella and stories. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Book Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash NBN forward slash join.